How many people know what the word Buddha means? Yeah, you, you reach your hand a little higher so you can just get... Somebody raise their hand like this, you know, it's like... <laughs> yeah, okay. It's an interesting word, Buddha. Comes from the root Bud, which means both Bodhi and Buddha, and they're derived from the same root, which means to wake up or to recover consciousness. This is from the Pali. And um, so Bodhi is not the result of an illumination but it's a path of realization or a coming to understand. And one of the metaphors or one of the ways that awakening is spoken about is understanding. And I'd like to talk about being awake and awakening tonight. And the word awake in the English dictionary means to wake up from sleep, which is also a way we can talk about what it means to wake up here. We're waking up from the sleep of our unconscious causes and conditions, our unconscious conditioning, our habits as we've spoken about. But it also means in the dictionary, in the English dictionary, to regain consciousness. And that's a very appropriate way to think about awakening is we regain our true consciousness, the consciousness that is listening to me and thinking about what I'm saying, or the consciousness that focuses and is aware and quiet, or the consciousness that has a myriad display of uh, potentials in terms of intelligence or understanding or wonder or imagination or creativity. Uh, and it also means that we awake to or become aware of or come to the realization of something. Again, this is just right out of the dictionary. Um, and it's a way of discovering realization in this sense means discovering the truth. And as you all know, Dharma means truth. One of the fundamental translations of Dharma is the truth. And to awaken not just awake, but to awaken means to both remain awake and to come out of sleep, like to be awake. And then to look back at the etymology of the word awake or awaken comes from the old English. And awoken, awokenan, is my attempt to pronounce the old English, which means to spring into being. Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw it. To spring into being, to arise, to originate. These are the three 
etymological components of awoken from the old English to spring into being. And when you hear it, think capital B being, right? To spring into aliveness, to spring into hereness, to spring into this, and to arise, to originate points to the freshness of this, which we have been pointing at in many, many different ways by pointing to the this of this moment, the liveness of this moment, the awakeness of this moment, the hereness of this moment, the magic of this moment, and it being known. And so one of the questions which some of you may have, some people have had, I think all of us have, I may be wrong, but how do we practice to wake up? And uh, the most formulaic part of the Buddhist canon is the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are all about waking up and seeing that what are the obstacles? There's suffering and there's a cause and there's the potential for the end of suffering. And the fourth truth is that there's actually a path that leads to freedom from suffering, that leads to awakeness, that leads to waking up. And it's a very, um, there are myriad, myriad suttas, stories, teachings in the Buddhist canon, many beautiful, and you've heard a lot of wonderful ones. I'm going to give you one of my favorites tonight. I'm going to give you more than one of my favorites, but I'm going to start with this one, which is about waking up. And you'll hear, I hope you hear the poignancy in it, and you'll hear in the story, it's to Anattapindaka, and Anattapindaka was not a monastic. Anattapindaka was like one of us. And Anattapindaka provided the land for um, Buddha's first um, monastery. I don't know if it was a formal monastery, but it was land where Buddha and the monks and nuns could live together, and it was their land, and it was given to them. It was dana, just like spirit rocks been given, it's dana. And so it's here for us to practice on. And um, and Anattapindaka, it's actually a great story, it's a little aside to the talk, but Anattapindaka asked the Buddha where he would like a place to practice, and he said, oh, this is beautiful, this land over here, and he would like that. And, and it was Jetta's Grove, and Jetta was a prince. And Jetta was a little upper class, you know, pr how princes are. And, um, <laughs> and, and, um, and so Anathapindaka went to Jetta and said, well, can, can I buy this land? I want to buy it for the Buddha. And, and Jetta was a little, you know, you don't know. I'm going to tell you. He, he was a little. He was a little cynical or snide. Or he said, "Oh, you you could have this land, and and it's possible you could buy this land." And Natapindika said, "How much is it?" 
He said, oh, if you cover it with gold, you can have it. So that's, you know, that's a price. Could you imagine if we had to cover Spirit Rock with gold, the land here? Which we did a little bit, believe me, but <laughs> but anyhow. So not the Pindicus said, okay, deal. I'm going to cover it. And he, he did whatever he needed to do. He covered it with gold. He got the land in, which really didn't make Prince Jetta happy. But it ended up being the first... Um, uh, um, a region of a Buddhist um, monastic order with the Buddha, which is known as Chetta's Grove. But back to Anattapindika. So Anattapindika is it's, um, later in his life, um, and he asked someone to go to talk to uh, Sariputta and tell them that Anattapindika, the householder, is diseased. He's in pain. He's severely ill, and he pays homage, bowing to you. And so Sariputta went to Anattapindika with uh, Ananda, the Venerable Ananda. And, and, and they say to him, they say, I hope you are getting better, householder. I hope you are comfortable. I hope your pains are lessening and not increasing. And I hope there are signs of their lessening and not of, of their increasing. And Anathapindaka is just totally straight, honest, real with them. And he says, I'm not getting better. So this is the first thing that caught my attention. Oh, he's really ill. He says, I'm not getting better. Venerable, I am not comfortable. My extreme pains are increasing, not lessening. There are signs of their increasing and not of their lessening. And then he describes in detail what's happening. He says, there are signs of their increasing and not lessening. Extreme forces slice through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head open with a sharp sword. It's a vivid, vivid image, and you can feel it in a... You may not actually feel it physically, but you can feel it in a very subtle way when you hear it. You, know, you can feel it emotionally when you hear it, you might. Right? And then he says, extreme pains have arisen in my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a turban made of tough leather straps around my head. And he continues, extreme forces cover up my stomach cavity, just as if a butcher or their apprentice were to carve up the stomach cavity of an ox. There are extreme burning in my body, just as if two strong men grabbing a weaker man by the arms were to roast and boil him over a pit of hot embers. I am not getting better, venerable. I am not comfortable. And then he says, my extreme pains are increasing, not lessening. So you get the picture. It's a very sobering picture of what's happening for Anathapindaka. And it's part of the cosmology in that, of that era to talk in this way about what was happening in terms of the dukkha of the body that um, may happen for all of us. And we have different ways to deal with it these days. And I'm not a big 
pain guy. And so I've had a lot of body dukkha in my life, and I've always appreciated that there were medicines that helped manage pain, and they didn't always manage the pain. It's true, too. And so Sariputta says, he says, then, householder, you should train yourself thus. And Sariputta is speaking for us. Whenever we're older, ill, dying, right, he's speaking to us. Train yourself thus. I won't cling to the eye. My consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. That's how you should train yourself. I will not cling to the ear to the nose, to the tongue, to the body. My consciousness will not be dependent on the body. I will not cling to the intellect. My consciousness will not be dependent on the intellect. That is how you should train yourself. And then he goes on and he continues. And really each of these little segments I'm going to read begins with, you should train yourself in this way. I won't I won't cling to forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. My consciousness will not be dependent on any of these. I will not cling to eye consciousness. I believe Devin was talking about eye, eye contact consciousness. Right? I will not cling to eye consciousness. I will not cling to ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness. This is how we should train ourselves. I will not cling to contact at the eye, contact at the ear, at the nose, contact at the tongue, at the body, etc. I won't cling to the feeling born out of contact or with the eye or the ear or the nose or the tongue or the body. I will not cling to the earth element as part of the, the different elements that were part of the cosmology of that time that were very familiar. I will not cling to the earth element, the liquid element, sometimes called the water element, the fire element, the wind element, the space element. You should train yourself in this way. I will not cling to form, feeling, perception. I will not cling um, to thought. I will not cling to consciousness. And my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. Please found that a very interesting part of the sutta. I won't cling to the dimension of infinitude of space. And now he's talking about states that one can experience in very deep meditation and samadhi. He says, I will not cling to the dimension of infinitude of space, the dimension of infinitude of consciousness. I will not cling to the dimension of nothingness. I will not cling to my consciousness will not be dependent on this. I will not cling to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. He's a very powerful, sublime states of consciousness that one may realize that are actually very pleasant. And he's saying, don't cling. Don't cling to these even. And then he goes on. He says, I will not cling to this world and I will not cling to the world beyond. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after, 
pondered by the intellect. And so Sariputta gives him this very powerful teaching that he's given to all of us because it's here. And it's about not clinging. And when this was said, Anathapindaka, the householder, wept and shed tears. And Ananda said to him, are you sinking, householder? Are you foundering? Are you, are you dying, basically? Ananda says to him. And, and, um, and uh, Anathapindaka says, no, venerable, I'm not sinking. I'm not foundering. It's just for that a long time I've attended to the teacher, the Buddha, and to the monks and nuns who inspire my heart, but never before have I heard a talk on the Dhamma such as this. And then, and then um, Sariputta says to him, this sort of talk on the Dhamma householder is not giving to lay people clad in white, which is how they made the distinction between lay people and and monastics. This sort of the Dhamma is given to those who have gone forth to the monastics. And then Anathapindaka speaking for us, for our wish for awakening, he says, in that case, Sariputta, please let this sort of talk on the Dhamma be given to lay people clad in white. There are clans people with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing this Dhamma. There are those who will understand it, meaning who will wake up to it. And so the, this teaching is given to us because of Sariputta, excuse me, because of Anathapindaka. And... Um, and after they gave it, they left. And soon after, it said, Anathapindaka, the householder, died and reappeared in the Tusita heaven, which was a heaven realm which was considered not a bad place to go after you die. So if we all meet in the Tusita heaven, uh, let's, we'll figure out how it is then. But... but Really, when I'm, the point is, this whole teaching, right? I will not cling to this world. I will not cling to the next world. I will not cling to what is, you know, heard, sensed, seen, cognized, attained. It's really saying, let go. Let go of everything. And that's part of what we've been doing here by just staying with what's arising moment by moment, by moment. We're not holding on to anything. We're simply coming into harmony with the way things are, which is everything is appearing, sustaining for a moment or a while, and disappearing. It's the truth of impermanence. And it's not a mistake. It's not a bad thing. It's the way reality is. There is nothing to hold on to. And of course, I know we all have feel ourselves hold on to things. And you don't have to resist the holding on. It does itself. But the good news 
You ready? <laughs> There's actually nothing you can actually hold on to. And I mean that sincerely. There's nothing we can hold on to. And it's a little bit one of the hidden blessings of aging. I've lived enough lives in this life to watch whole worlds that I've been part of appear and be great or good or bad or whatever they were and then disappear. And then the next world appeared and sustained for a while and was, it was all real. I don't want to no, make no mistake. It was all real while it was happening. But it went away. You know, I, I could tell you, I could give you the quick blurb of Eugene's many lives, whether it was doing radical political street theater in New York or the 60s and being a hippie or living on a commune in Oregon and wondering what the hell am I doing here? And, the whole street theater moved to Oregon, but there were no streets, and we didn't. <laughs> it didn't, didn't work too well, and it's true. And then, and then becoming a musician because I had nothing else to really do. I mean, I built a cabin in the woods. That was good, but 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 I but I was I started. I got into music really deeply. I started practicing eight hours a day. And then I left. I left Oregon, came to San Francisco, music, eight hours a day, playing at night, opened up uh, a performing space in my house. I had some world-class musicians come through to perform, basically for free. And then, uh, and then after that faded, um, uh, I, I thought I should go to school. I went to college, got a BA and MA in four years, became a therapist because I knew a little about being crazy. So I thought, okay, I could do this. And I was good enough as a therapist. And then I got into Buddhism and I liked it. And I started doing retreats and Jack asked me to teach. So I became a teacher, and of course, in there, I also had a family and a child, and and you know, the therapy went away. I became a teacher, and then there was another, you know, um, spiritual group, the Diamond Approach, that I became part of, and became a teacher there. Then I'm teaching in both, and you know, and so. It, but these were all; each was a different life, and the, and the other ones are gone. And even this one, this one went away for a while and came back because I had a brain injury and a bicycle accident 12 years ago and almost died. And then I'm back again, which is totally wild. And what I'm pointing at is there was nothing I could hold on to in all of that. There, there are things that live with me, but I didn't have to hold on to them. And I'll give you one example. So I had the, the bad bicycle accident. I had a brain injury. Uh, bad. That's serious. Um, do not recommend it at all. And, um, and uh, didn't know if I would live or die. Five weeks in the hospital, go home. And I'd been so unplugged by the brain injury. I, I, like, I didn't remember a lot of people. Jack Cornfield came to the hospital. I couldn't remember his name. I knew I knew him. I said, they asked me, who is he? I'm like, 
oh, he's the guy who tells people what the truth is, something like that. <laughs> but so, so some of it stuck, but it wasn't because I held on to it. And, uh, and, um, and so, and when I got home, um, I had a, a Zafu and Zabutan in my room, which I sat on for years and years. And I, I looked at it, and I knew that you sat on it, but I didn't know how to meditate. I didn't know, and I'd been a serious meditator with really good samadhi and practiced many, many retreats and, you know, month-long, longer than month-long, etc. And uh, and finally, um, after a few days home, I knew that you sat on it. So I sat down on the zafu, and I didn't know what to do. But I just sat there. And I sat there for a while, and then I got up, I have no idea if I sat five minutes or 20 minutes, but, and I got up and I still didn't know what you do when you sit down, but I knew that sitting down was good. I knew it. And I kept sitting every day and slowly my mind came back and I remembered how to meditate formally. But what I'm saying is I didn't hold on to that. It was here. I didn't have to hold on to it, is what I saw in retrospect. It was here. And what you are, who you are, the goodness of who you are, each of you, is here. You actually can't lose that. You can obscure it, and you can lose touch with it, but it's here. And so part of what we're doing is coming into the present and being aware of what's true in the moment. And what's true is the precious human birth that's sitting in your seat. And I'll just, this is an add-on, but there was, uh, I went down, maybe it was breakfast this morning. Um, and they were a little late with the breakfast. And the, um, the woman who was rushing to get everything out was coming over and trying to open something and she couldn't and she and I and I was first in line so I leaned over I, I said don't rush meaning she doesn't have to rush even if she's late it's a meditation retreat we know you're all going to wait for breakfast so so I said and, and she looked at me and she laughed and she relaxed she let go of having to rush and she just got there and I was happy to support that. And we both smiled together. And then she did what she needed to do. And then we had breakfast. So letting go is what Anatta Pindaka and we are all being taught. And that leads to freedom and awakening. And now there are many ways to understand awakening. Um, and I'll say a few of them, right? Because many you know. First thing is we're awakening to what's true. We're awakening to the Dharma. We're awakening to Dharma meaning truth or the truth of the way things are, the way reality is, not the way we want it to be or think it should be or want, you know, or imagine it will be, but at the actual reality of this moment that we've been focusing on 
because this is the only moment there is right now. And then I can say that again. Now, this is the only moment there is right now. One more time. <laughs> right? Now, this is the only moment there is. And what we do as humans is we try to hold on to past moments and future moments. And so we get a little contracted. But actually, there is past and future, but it's not here now. And so if the more we live in here and now, the more we can respond with all our goodness for now this moment, all our intelligence, all our Dharma wisdom to this moment and start to wake up. And there's a simplicity to awakening because it's just right here. Right? Awakening is about the real revelation of this moment displaying itself. Here, I've got a good little thing I came up with. It's called the four R's. Right? People like things like that sometimes. You may hate it. It's okay. Right? Here, awakening reveals the truth and the depth of Dharma. The four R's. Being real. You can't be mindful if you're not real. It doesn't work. If I sit here and I think, oh, I'm really feeling happy, and I feel like shit, oh, happy, happy, oh, fuck, happy, happy. <laughs> it doesn't work. You have to be real, right? If I'm pissed, you be aware of being pissed. Be aware of the energy, not just the story, but the liveness of anger or pissness or whatever it might be, right? So being real... And being real starts to bring a revelation of what's here. If we really stay with it, it will start to show more of itself, more of what's here. And often, like, for example, with anger, usually there's some hurt or some, some, something we're reacting to, we're, we're angry about, or there's some injustice that we're angry about. And we can be aware of that. And so being real is the kind of revelation comes. And then with revelation, we start to have some realization of what's the truth and what's needed, how to respond appropriately, because we're actually in the real moment of life now. And that realization is based on reality. We are realizing reality, the truth. And so we're seeing not just the specific, but also there's a kind of um, awakening to the bigger picture, the, even the causes and conditions. Hmm. I've watched my, I think it's okay to say this, my wife deal with her um, ill and aging mother who's very close to death. And her mother had a breakdown a few years ago, mental breakdown. And she's been gone even before she's gone, really. And I've watched my wife's uh, grief and difficulty in dealing with her mother and her love for her mother. And I've been part of it. We see her mother regularly, although there's not much 
relationship with mother because mother's a little bit gone. And, um, but I've watched my wife the, um, being real about what's happening and the kind of uh, allowing her responses, the revelation of her grief and her anger about it also, which was there. And then the realization of the bigger picture of reality of that her mother, for all her pluses and minuses, was and is even now doing the best she can. And so the love comes as we are aware of reality. And I've seen it really happen for my wife through a very, very difficult situation. Mm. And it's close right now. Um, Hospice is coming in because it's time. And just to know both I and my wife have been hospice volunteers, so we're aware of that world. And my wife's actually doing as, as well as she can. And the grief is there about her mom is dying and going to die soon. And that's all part of the totality of awakening to what's true and the freedom to awake to it all. So there are many levels to awakening, right? The moment. And then really part of what supports the awakening is loving the truth, loving the Dharma. And that love is an important part that we've been pointing at and talking about. And it's, uh, I think, I think Devin brought up devotion today. Somebody did. Yeah, yeah, no. And I love the word devotion as part of practice. To be devoted to the truth, to be devoted to being real, to be devoted to waking up. It's a heartfelt uh, energy and, and uh, potency. It's not just, you know, it's not just, oh, I want. No, it's, it's the heart's true desire that all of us have, I believe, if you weren't, you wouldn't be here. There's, there has to be a, a source of your coming here, and it's something you seek that the heart wants. Even if you don't know what it is the heart wants, you came here. So there's a love of the presence of awareness in which awakening happens. And I use those words quite specifically, love of the presence of awareness, not just being aware, but the presence of awareness itself. And one of our teachers who I have a great affection for, uh, Venerable Analyo, He talked about it this way. Well, first, I'll give you a little back there. A woman, uh, Caroline um, um, Rice Davis, who wrote one of the first Western books about Buddhism, spoke about the four presences of mindfulness in 1936 in the West here. English woman from the UK. And, um, And... Analio um, talks about the presence 
that she points at, he says, the discourses frequently refer sati, satipatthana is what's translated as mindfulness, could also easily be translated as awareness, right? So um, the discourses frequently relate sati to the verb indicating that presence is etymologically correct, right? So he's looking at the root because he studies the origin of the ancient teachings and he's quite brilliant at it. And he goes on to say, it is due to the presence of sati that one is able to remember what is otherwise only too easily forgotten, the present moment. Sati as present moment awareness is similarly reflected in the presentation of the Patisambada Maga and the Vasudhi Maga, according to which, and so he's referring to different texts that support what he's pointing at, um, according to which the characteristic of Sati is presence, Upatana, Upatana, He's calling presence, whether as a faculty or as an awakening factor, as a factor of the Eightfold Noble Truth, or at the moment of realization. There's a presence of mindfulness. We're not just being mindful of. There's the presence of mind that knows. And he goes on, he says, thus mindfulness being present can be understood to imply presence of mind insofar as it is direct, oh no, I don't need to say it, a presence of mind. Presence of mind in this sense, in the sense that endowed with sati, one is wide awake in regard to the present moment and owing to such presence of mind, whatever one does or says will be clearly apprehended by the mind. It means we're actually awakening moment by moment by moment. And that is to be felt, sensed, tasted, known, realized. Instead of awakening being on the mountaintop of some state, but actually you can awaken here moment by moment, by moment. And you can enjoy the blessings of that kind of waking up. Mm. I'm going to add one more piece from um, Analia. He said the suggestion that sati blah blah is well oh, uh, sati well-established can be characterized as having breadth, right? Not just narrow focus, right? Having breadth instead of a narrow focus um, um, and supported in the discourses which relate to the absence of sati as a narrow state of mind while its presence leads to a broad and even boundless state of heart and mind. And so it's pointing at the at the magic of awareness, the infinitude of awareness, the, the um, fact that you can't put it in your pocket. And you can't, most people can't even, everybody still thinks it's a thing, and it's not a thing. It's a presence, and a presence is not actually a thing.
Okay. Right? And so the love guides us to awakening, to being aware. And it's not an intellectual realization, awakening. It's talked about one of the metaphors that Buddha used was the sure heart's release. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful understand the sure heart's release. Remember, chitta heart is both heart and mind. It's the sure heart's release or it's consciousness's release. And it comes in different times and places, definitely comes in samadhi, it can start to develop. We can awaken to becoming one with our experience. And this is true of the breath or the body or the sounds. Like if you're doing, you can become one with it. And by you becoming one, I mean consciousness, awareness becomes one with what it knows. We stop doing this and it's like, it's just knowing itself is how it feels. And it's a certain kind of awakening to non-dual reality. And that's a beautiful part of awakening. It's very nourishing to the heart and soul. We see how good we are when that happens. We see the goodness of being alive and, and practice. It's, it, what it feels like is we become reality knowing itself. That's what the deep samadhi feels like. And um, Ajahn Chah used to talk about it this way. He said, be aware of the one who knows. Right? So awakening is, starts to know itself. It's reality knowing itself. Ajahn Chah, our lineage holder here and, and ancestor, said, oh yeah, be aware of the one who knows. See what's happening and then see the one who knows all of it. Right? Because you are the one who knows. Mm. So, it's humbling to wake up, actually. It's humbling because it's a paradox of being coming illuminated and then seeing that we can't do it. It does us. We give ourselves, we devote ourselves to the Dharma, and the Dharma does us. And, and it's actually true about a lot of reality. The body's just doing itself. 95% of the time, the mind is just doing itself, <laughs> whether we want it to or not. And the heart does itself. And reality does itself. There's nobody, as far as we know, doing it. There are causes and conditions, and we can have a little input into that. But it's still doing itself. Mm. One instinct that isn't talked about so much as animals and, and both both physical, psychological animals, we have instincts. Survival instinct, sexual instinct, social instinct. 
the instinct that is the hidden instinct that you all have is the awakening instinct. There's a there's an innate movement towards freedom in the human heart, mind, as far as I can tell. And it's this secret magnetism that pulls us to the Dharma, the magnetic pull towards unity, the magnetic pull towards freedom, the magnetic pull towards something we don't even know what it is sometimes, but we feel the pull for something good, something real, something true. And in classic Theravadan teaching, there's a lot of names for awakening. Somebody, somebody, I think again, Devin might have said the unconditioned today. It's beautiful, the unconditioned. What the hell is that? The unconditioned. But also, here's some other, a bunch of names for awakening. The unformed, the unconditioned, the end the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, purity, freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond, the deathless, one of my favorites, the deathless, and of course, nibbana, or nirvana in the Sanskrit. And classically in Theravada Buddhism, the first stage of enlightenment is the cessation of consciousness. And we don't talk about it so directly because it's not something anybody can do, not anybody. Even the deepest yogis, you can't make it happen. You can put the causes and conditions in place for it to happen, but you can't do it. The cessation of consciousness, they, they talk about it a little like, um, sometimes like sleep, right? Going to sleep, and that you're, that's, that's called poor man's nirvana, or poor, poor person's nirvana going to sleep because you're out, right, in deep sleep. But really, it's wilder than that because you disappear and you don't know you've disappeared. And there's nothing there that knows you disappeared. And you come back and it's a little like you do this. <laughs> something, you know something happened, but you don't actually know what it was because there was no consciousness there. And that is considered part of the first first opening. There are actually four different enlightenment or awakening stages. And what's important about it, I mean, there are a lot, lot we can say about it because it brings some kind of release or peace. And it's like who and what one thought one was actually has totally let go so totally you don't even know that it has let go, but it's 
gone and you're back and it's like you've been, consciousness has been reborn. It's not exactly the same consciousness as it was before. Mm. The Buddha wrote and said, having nothing, clinging to nothing, holding on to nothing, that is the island, the deathless, Nibbana, right? There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. And the last piece I'll add, excuse me for rushing a little, is just, you heard the story of Bahia, which I love, Bahia of the bark cloth. I just love the gear that Bahia was wearing. And I, I, and I love his, um, his devotion to waking up and coming to the Buddha three times saying, please teach me. The Buddha says, no. I mean, how would you feel? You go and you meet the Buddha. Hey, can you give me the teachings? No, Eugene, it's not the right time. You ask again, again, says no. And, and the, you're persistent enough because it's what you care about, what you love. And the Buddha said, okay, here's the, basically the short version. In the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sense, merely what is sensed. In the cognized, merely what is cognized. Train yourself to practice in this way. And when you when that happens, da 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 um, merely what is cognized, then Bahir, you not be with that. When Bahir, you are not with that. Then, then Bahir, you not in that. When Bahir, you are not in that. Then Bahir, you are neither here, nor there, nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. And it's just, it's so simple. We're not here, we're not there, we're not in between, we're not anywhere. There's a freedom of being awake in that way. And and the then it the story goes on, which which um Devin didn't finish the story, so I'm finishing it. Now through this brief Dharma teaching of the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia, mind heart of Bahia of the bar cloth, was immediately freed from from taint taints from clinging and without grasping. So he got a transmission from the Buddha and he woke up. And then the Buddha, having instructed Bahia with this brief instruction, went for lunch. And not long after the Buddha's departure, a cow, wait, wait, it's a serious dharma, a cow with a young calf attacked Bahia and killed him. <laughs> you you never know what's going to happen. You just don't. And you know, I mean, you don't have to worry. We don't have attacking cows here on the land, but but that's in the text, right? And so, right, a cow, and and uh, so okay, and then and then the boot. And then what it, the story finishes by saying, when the Buddha, having walked for alms food, getting lunch in Svati, was returning with a number of bhikkhus uh, on departing from town, he saw that Bahia of the bar cloth had died. And seeing this, meaning he knows, he has tremendous 
His consciousness is very open. He knows things. That's what that means. He didn't just see it physically, right? Um, Bhikkhus, take Bahia's body, put it on a leader, carry it away and burn it and make a stupa for it. Your companion in the holy life has died. And they take his body, they put it on a leader, they burn it, make a stupa. And then they went to the Buddha, the bhikkhus did, bowed to him, sat on the side and sitting with them. The Buddha said, Bahia's body's been burnt and a stupa's been made. They, they asked the Buddha, um, what is his destiny? What is his future birth? And, and the Buddha says, Bahia of the bar cloth was a wise person. He practiced according to the Dhamma and did not trouble me by disputing the Dhamma. You all get that? (laughs) It's good. Good you can laugh about it because he wasn't kidding. (laughs) Right? He practiced according to the Dharma and did not trouble me by disputing the Dharma. So listen to your teachers. (laughs) And and then it goes on, it says, Bhikkhu's Bahia of the bar cloth has attained final nibbana. And then on realizing its significance, the Buddha uttered this inspired utterance. And this is from a book. This part of the canon is called The Words of Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And so it's, it's poetry. And this is the end of what he says. He says, and this is quite beautiful. Listen, I'll read it slowly. Where, where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold. Where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. Right? There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. When a bhikkhu practitioner has come to know this for themselves through their own experience, then they are freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from pain. Let's sit for a minute. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. Thank you for your presence. We have a period of movement, walking, practice. 
please feel free to leave before I do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.